Stories that Tom and Jay look at this week include the Biden administration's anti-corruption strategy is revealed. Mike Volkoff asks, where are the FCPA enforcement actions? What is the intersection of global ESG efforts and compliance? Mike Monroe explores in the FCPA blog. Jessica Tillman looks at potential uh, changes from the OECD recommendations on anti-corruption compliance programs. Matt Kelly explores nurturing an ethical culture in risk and compliance matters. Rick Messick asks, is Italy a safe haven for bribe payers? How can you avoid a dystopian office culture? Jacqueline Jager on compliance and ethics failures in 2021. And when is a potential fine a threat? Keith Paul Bishop in California Corporate and Securities Law. The Affiliated Monitors podcast series, Not Your Father's Monitors. Final edition of Effing Argentina, a new edition of The Compliance Life, and a new podcast series on the Compliance Podcast Network, all on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for this weekend, FCPA, episode 280, for the week ending December 10, 2021, the Happy Holidays edition. Hanukkah came early this year, and now we're in the full holiday swing of things. And Tom and Jay are back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. So, Jay, what say ye? I say let's see what kind of ethics and compliance presence Santa is wrapping, and we'll unwrap the top ten today. Well, that presupposes that you're on the nice list, Jay, not on the naughty list. No comment. So uh, our first story is the release of, for those listening at home and not on video, which is no one since this is not a video pod, I'm showing you the United States Strategy for Countering Corruption, which was released this week by the Biden administration. Uh, The coolest guy in compliance who has a double header today uh, wrote about it. And, uh, Jay, this is an extraordinarily significant document from the Biden administration. It's the first time the United States government has taken a comprehensive view of uh, a complete anti-corruption strategy for national security purposes. They, there's a lot in here, a lot to digest for the compliance professional. Uh, that I think that means uh, more, more enforcement, more cross-border investigations, Lots of more looking into money laundering, uh, real estate, art, and uh, other businesses that have either traditionally accepted cash uh, for some or part, uh, some or all of their uh, sales are going to come under increased scrutiny. The Department of Justice, uh, excuse me, the entire U.S. government is going to be mobilized both in terms of investigation, but also uh, just in review through data analytics of looking at trends around corruption. They're going to focus on the usual suspects, i.e. West Africa, Central Asia, uh, Asia Pacific, China, where uh, corruption has been endemic. There's a now, I think, a broad understanding of the total invidiousness of corruption in addition to the fact that corruption uh, leads to crime, which leads to terrorism, which I think was one of the precursors to 9-11 So uh, a big announcement from the Biden administration, 
uh, not a lot right now for the private industry corporate compliance practitioner, but a lot will be coming. And with uh, government agencies, uh, the Department of Commerce is going to house the primary anti-corruption agency for the U.S. government, not the enforcement wing of the DOJ uh, under the FCPA. So it's going to be, I think, a very mobilized effort. Lots that we're going to be talking about over the next 12, 24, 36 months. But a basic recognition, Jay, that the global scourge of anti-corruption, the fight must be led by the United States. It's not simply anti-corruption. It's money laundering. It's terrorist financing. It's a wide variety of things that we talk about on this podcast and that every compliance practitioner needs to be aware of. So uh, the president made his initial announcement back in June, and now he's delivered on the promise to have federal agencies sit down and write out a protocol, a plan, and a program that will include uh, legislation in Congress, uh, enhanced investigative capabilities, and enhanced enforcement. So I think we're going to be talking about this a lot, and it's a huge announcement. So uh, first off uh, on my stories, I've got something from Mike Volkov's Corruption, Crime, and Compliance blog. And Mike asks, think of your best Elizabethan Shakespeare, FCPA enforcement actions, ODOJ, SEC, wherefore art thou, ODOJ and SEC? FCPA practitioners, in-house counsel, and compliance officers, and yes, even the FCPA paparazzi have been patient for long enough. And as the saying goes, talk is cheap, and it's action that counts. We have written often about the coming storm, the Biden administration's long-anticipated ramp-up of white-collar crime and white-collar enforcement, and FCPA actions in particular. The groundwork was set by the National Security Memorandum raising the global fight against anti-corruption to a national security interest, and the Biden administration has long had long enough to get their act in gear, review current cases for resolution, and put their new stamp on FCPA enforcement actions. The SEC has also promised aggressive enforcement as well. But what do we hear? Crickets. Yes, crickets. The Biden DOJ can no longer justify its inaction by claiming the normal delay from an administration transition, even if this transition was subject to extreme delays and obstruction. The Biden DOJ has one other possible excuse, but it may be a little bit too cynical on Mike's part. Maybe he's just getting his hopes up only to be dashed in the weeks to follow. The, the interagency process for announcing a comprehensive government-wide anti-corruption initiative is expected to be completed by early December 2021, as evidenced by Tom's story he just spoke about. Could there be a new slew of FCPA enforcement actions be announced as proof of the administration's commitment to a new national security-motivated and anti-corruption initiative? You can tell that Mike's thinking has moved now to the cynical side. With his tongue-in-cheek rant finished, he feels back. He feels ready to go back to his old objective self. In reality, he would like to think that we're in the eye of a hurricane that's about to lash out with a coordinated global anti-corruption initiative. We all know that the DOJ and SEC have a significant caseload out of FCPA enforcement actions. And if you track corporate disclosures and other sources of info, 
FCPA enforcement and investigations is robust and will continue. It's also safe to assume that the Biden administration's commitment to a new aggressive approach to anti-corruption enforcement will be significant. Lisa Monaco's recent speech announcing the new white-collar initiatives is a specific warning to corporation, business leaders, lawyers, and compliance professionals. The coming perfect storm of FCPA enforcement will be strong and will include major blockbuster cases. Trust Mike because he knows they're coming. Tom, what about global ESG efforts and compliance? What's on Mike Monroe's mind? So Mike Monroe is the founder at the or co-founder of GCRM, an ESG and compliance advisory firm in Houston. And writing in the FCPA blog, he says the global ESG initiatives put compliance officers on a steep learning curve. And I, I hate to read something, but I'm just going to read the announcement that came from the IFRS this week. So, quote, on November 3rd, IFRS announced a new sustainability board, the ISSB, having been formed to work alongside its accounting standards board, the IASB, and further the Sustainability Standards Organization, the CDSD, and the VAF, a recent merger of the SASB and IIRC, will soon be consolidated into the IRFS Foundation. On November 16th, the EFRAG uh, that works closely with the EC and executive branch of the EU regarding IFRS foundation standards issued an important status report relating to the EC's CSRD legislative proposal that requires, would require compliance with ESRS as previously uh, being developed by the PTA-ESRS based on the preliminary work contemplated by the PTA-NFRS with further input to be provided from the EWGS. So, Jay, if your head hasn't exploded yet, uh, it soon will. Uh, but Mike puts a handy uh, key to the meaning of each acronym of those paragraphs that I quoted from his piece in his FCPA blog point post. rather. The point, Jay, is that uh, all of us are going to have to learn a whole lot more acronyms than simply DOJ and SEC, and perhaps even uh, beyond learning how to spell FCPA, uh, to call ourselves ESG aficionados, and that we're all going to have a steep learning curve, and that uh, as much as the business community is driving this, we're going to have regulators and regulatory standards that we all have to comply with. So, um, uh, his piece was not really as tongue-in-cheek as I read it, but I certainly read it that way. So compliance officers, get ready. Jay, uh, do you have any thoughts, or rather does Jessica Tillipman have any additional thoughts on the OECD, the acronym, recommendations? Well, thank you for asking, Tom. Uh, Jessica was indeed delighted to read about the OECD's recent recommendations for further combating the bribery of foreign officials. And last week we touched upon this uh, in an article written for FCPA blog by Nicola Bonucci and Nat Edmonds, and they noted in their timely post that the provisions of the recommendation could result in a dramatic shift and in the enforcement environment. Jessica certainly hopes so and commends the OECD for its balanced approach to addressing the gaps in countries' current approaches 
to addressing foreign bribery. She particularly applauds the section in the OECD's recommendation, which is related to debarment, a tool that, when used effectively, protects governments from doing business with companies that are unethical and grossly incompetent. However, some countries have taken a draconian approach to debarment in response to foreign bribery, and they give little or no weight to a company's remediation efforts and instead uh, in compliance enhancements in response to the company's transgressions, which is why she is thrilled that OECD has recommended a balanced and frankly more workable approach to debarment. Specifically, the OECD recommends that countries consider mitigating factors and remediation when making debarment decisions. Although this recommendation appears modest, its implications could be profound. For too long, many anti-corruption and good governance experts have viewed debarment as a sledgehammer to be used as a means to rid companies of any com- companies, rather to rid countries of any companies that may have engaged in misconduct. Not only is this a punitive approach, and it can also severely hinder countries for the effectively serving the populations they govern. In contrast, OECD's nuanced and reasonable approach induces ethical transformations in contractors by rewarding them for mitigation and remediation rather than blindly cutting off government revenue streams. In turn, this approach is more effectively as it protects taxpayer dollars and enables governments to continue working with companies who have demonstrated their commitment to ethics and compliance moving forward. Tom, there's a DOL proposal that may change the ESG game. What does Melissa Kahn have to say about that? So, Jay, as you know, the Trump administration said that investment advisors of uh, uh, plans could not, uh, investment plans could not take ESG information into account when uh, making uh, an investment decision. Uh, Obviously, the Trump administration was antithetical to anything ESG-related, and one might even say even anything positive-related, but we'll save that one for another podcast. But under these new rules, uh, plan advisors can take into account ESG factors. Uh, They removed the pecuniary v. non-pecuniary factor, or rather those terms have been uh, deleted in terms of evaluation so that uh, you can take a look at ESG-themed funds. Also, the use of ESG as a tiebreaker for whether alternative investments would be satisfactory is uh, uh, now clarified. And interestingly, the author uh, stated why um, this time it was different. And she pointed out that the Trump administration pushed through a lot of uh, regulations, rules, and the like at the end of their term, obviously not thought, thought well thought out, probably bought and paid for by some lobbying group. Um, and here we have a well thought out uh, regulation from the Department of Labor. But the key is that it comes in early the, in the administration. And that gives uh, planned fiduciaries comfort in the fact that the legal environment will be in place for years to come. And if uh, uh, a Republican administration comes back, it's going to be difficult to overturn this, particularly when fund managers really want this. And uh, there was much consternation from the Trump administration rules on this, and frankly, uh, no good reason for them uh, to uh, block uh, funds from investing in uh, ESG 
related companies. So uh, good news from the Department of Labor and uh, the Biden administration has really cemented, I think, putting ESG on the regulatory uh, map in addition to commercial operations and business enterprises, putting it on the business map. So, uh, Jay, what does the coolest guy in compliance have to say about nurturing ethical cultures? As promised, Tom, this is part two of a double dip with Matt Kelly. This time Matt is writing in the Navix Global Risk and Compliance Matters blog. And he says that ethical culture is becoming more valuable. You need to know how to nurture it. Corporate ethics and compliance officers has long, have long argued that maintaining an ethical corporate culture is important to a business for all sorts of reasons. Now, you may not be able to offer one more, or now you might be able to offer one more. Failing to maintain an ethical corporate culture might violate federal security rules. At least that's the logic we're seeing in several recent high-profile examples of corporate conduct gone wrong, most recently uh, and foremost among them is Facebook. Francis Hagen, who was more commonly known as the Facebook whistleblower, filed eight complaints with the SEC this fall, arguing that Facebook's behavior was nowhere near as ethical as the company portrays itself to be to the public, and therefore Hagen and her lawyers say the SEC should investigate. What's interesting here is that the Facebook example doesn't involve the usual ad allegations of fraudulent financial reporting. Whistleblowers aren't saying we were fabricating deals to inflate revenue or executives use false spreadsheets and sham vendors to bribe their way. Rather, Haugen is telling the world our corporate culture and operations were nothing like what you thought, and she believes that investors that would make different decisions about owning Facebook shares if they saw the organization's true, na- true nature. Which investors would only do if they believed that unethical behavior is something to be avoided? This whole premise of these complaints is that a strong ethical culture is something investors inherently value, and that misleading statements about corporate culture can sometimes be grave enough to be regulatory to merit regulatory enforcement. This momentum for an ethical culture has been a long time coming. For years, research has shown that companies scoring highly on benchmarks of ethical performance tend to enjoy better share price appreciation than lower-scoring peers. In fact, other stakeholder groups such as consumers, NGOs, and business partners have already been clamoring clamoring for more evidence of a company's ethical nature for years and then making decisions based upon them when they learn. So let's consider the compliance functions capabilities necessary in this world. As a company's ethical culture becomes more important to good relations with its shareholder groups, this has big implications for corporate ethics and compliance programs. First, accuracy in what the company discloses about its ethical culture becomes crucial. The compliance function would play a critical role in that since yours is the one that manages internal reporting hotlines. Second, then the ethics and compliance function needs to work closely with the company's disclosure team. The disclosure team is responsible for controls and procedures that capture material information about the company that should be disclosed to investors. If the company's ethical culture is becoming more important to investors and stakeholders, then the corporate compliance function needs to work closely with that team to assure that right issues are disclosed. Third, and perhaps as always, 
Keeping strive, keep striving for a strong ethical culture. Talk with senior leaders about the importance of setting clear ethical priorities. This shouldn't be news to compliance officers either, since demonstrating a culture of compliance is so important to showing regulators you have an effective compliance program. But the more you can show your leadership is committed to being honest and having ethical culture, the more you can deflect specific examples of misconduct back to the individuals who insist upon doing it. That ability will become more important in today's world where investors and others watch ethical conduct closely. Your ability to nurture the culture, preserve it, and document it will deliver a premium price for your company. Tom, next up, is Italy a safe haven for bribe payers? Well, Jay, unfortunately it is. And this comes to us from Rick Messick in the Global Anti-Corruption blog. He poses that question, and unfortunately he answers that question. And he answers the question in the affirmative, and the reason he answers it in the affirmative is that the Italian judiciary has determined that uh, you can only have a conviction for bribery and corruption if there is an explicit agreement in place, I will pay you a bribe and you will do something for me. Um, Criminals are pretty sophisticated, Jay, and uh, winks and nods work pretty well, even in 2021. And so for the Italian judiciary to say there's an express agreement uh, you know, either oral or in writing, because remember, well, I guess you wouldn't remember because you didn't go to law school, but uh, an oral contract can be a, as effective as a written contract. And that could be true in the bribery world, too. If I say to you, Jay, I'm going to pay you X, and Jay says, Tom, I'm going to send you a contract. So um, a disanomaly, uh, it just really befuddles the rest of the Western world uh, because you can't have a bribery uh, conviction ever because no criminals that stupid. So uh, he interestingly points out that the OECD, remember that acronym, Jay? Um, have you heard of that one today? Uh, not very I, recently. Very recently. Very good. Um, the OECD does peer reviews of compliance programs. I had the, the privilege to participate in the 2020 review, OECD peer review of the U.S., uh, enforcement uh, regime. So um, uh, the OECD is going to do a peer review. It's going to be interesting to see what the OECD says about this. Obviously, uh, Italy, as an OECD signatory, uh, is obligated to enforce laws, and this very narrow interpretation makes it virtually impossible for um, there to be a successful bribery and corruption uh, bribery and corruption conviction. So, unfortunately, the answer is yes, Italy is a safe haven for bribe payers. Jay, I know um, we've talked many times in this podcast about uh, one of your former lives as Mr. Screenwriter, uh, SAG card carrying member, uh, screenwriter. Uh, so, I've never really asked about your views on dystopian movies, but We'll leave that aside for another day because I wondered how do you avoid a dystopian office culture? It's a great question, Tom. Uh, we're going to give you some answers from Rob Chevelle. Hopefully I said it right. And this is in the Corporate Compliance Insights blog. And it's entitled Employee Surveillance Can Turn Your Office Dystopian If You Don't Reciprocate with Transparency and Security. 
No company wants to be known for treating its workers like robots. Yet that's exactly what happened to Amazon. Obsessed with efficiency, the tech giant long ago decided to incorporate employee monitoring software into all aspects of his business, from observing drivers' behavior while they're on the road to tracking warehouse workers' time of tasks to going so far as to even hiring private detectives to gather intelligence on striking workers in Europe. Unfortunately, regardless of their impact on productivity, these excessive monitoring practices have also branded Amazon as a terrible place to work. Evidently, Amazon is feeling the heat. Earlier this year, the company announced that it would be changing its time off task metrics to make sure the system doesn't penalize workers for going into the bathroom or talking to managers. Equitable employee monitoring has a host of benefits. Done right, monitoring how employees spend their time can be a significant boon for everyone in the organization. In general, equitable monitoring can provide benefits within three categories. First, wellness. Professional services firm PwC in 2020 asked if any of its employees were interested in wearing a smartwatch that would record their biometric data to see if they could if sleep could affect their performance. The project only had a thousand spaces, but two thousand employees signed up. Crucially, PC, PwC made it clear that they would anonymize and aggregate staff data with only the worker able to access their own data in its raw form. Next up, productivity. From an HR point of view, employee monitoring can aid with attendance tracking, which can ease staffing issues, help deal with employee absenteeism, and improve overall, improve overall morale. And finally, cybersecurity. Monitoring can improve an organization's security by making it easier to catch some of the bad cybersecurity habits that employees can sometimes fall into. What monitoring cannot do, whether used for management to improve cybersecurity or any other legitimate case, employees can find the benefit in being monitored. However, they also need to know that the monitoring is happening. Rather than silently installing what is effectively corporate spyware on employees' devices, organizations should allow their staff to download monitoring software themselves. Employees also need to be told what exactly will be monitored, for example, web browsing and app activity and when. Organizational risks from employee monitoring. While most business leaders are well aware that the overly invasive employee monitoring could lead to negative PR or even culture crises, They also need to understand that collecting employee data comes with increasing legal responsibility. Here are four steps to sustainability and secure monitoring. Rushing to bridge the gap between traditional office environment and the new remote hybrid reality, employers must have thought it was wise to start monitoring their work-from-home employees. However, making these efforts sustainable requires a different approach. Here are four key points that any organization that wants to continue monitoring from home needs to consider. First and foremost, every organization needs to bring employees into the conversation around monitoring from day one. Access to the monitoring tools and the data they collect needs to be strictly controlled. Third, rather than deploying monitoring as a broad solution, HR leaders need to identify useful analytical insights that monitoring could deliver. And fourth, executives approving monitoring programs need to be aware of two things. A, the risks improper monitoring poses to the organization, and B, 
the potential legal implications that poor data collection practices can have on their business. Some final thoughts. Employee monitoring should never be the first tool an organization reaches for, regardless of the plan use case. Instead, it's best to use this as a last resort. When other methods of gaining visibility into the workforce behavior or managing compliance are not possible, employing monitoring solutions may have a role to play in your organization. However, even in the cases when the reasons for doing so are clear-cut and justifiable, any business that monitors employees needs to be, transpa- needs to be transparent about the process, aware of the risks that may come, and have a clear plan for what happens to the data collected. Tom, can you tell me about or tell our listeners about some top ethics and compliance failures in 2021? Sure, Jay. Just comes to us from Jacqueline Jager uh, reporting in Compliance Week, and she details her top five ethics and compliance failures of uh, 2021. It includes the uh, ignominious group of Credit Suisse, who continues to have significant compliance failures, obviously have lost a lot of money because of their uh, inanity. Robinhood, who racks up uh, uh, fines after fines after fines, uh, and unfortunately, due to an error, a uh, 18 year excuse me, a 20-year-old believed that he had racked up more than $700,000 in losses by trading options, and he committed suicide. Toyota, who was hit with the largest civil penalty for systematically violating the EPA of $180 million, Activision Blizzard, which I don't even know where to start there, uh, but you have one of the most corrupt cultures or toxic cultures, I should say, sexual harassment and discrimination rampant. Uh, you had sexual assaults uh, that were um, known by the literally the CEO of the company uh, who didn't um, bother to inform the, inform the board of directors. Uh, a, a completely inane and tone-deaf email sent out uh, under the name of the CCO uh, which uh, attacked the whistleblowers who had come forward, and it turned out this same idiot CEO uh, drafted it. And finally, uh, the company formerly known as Facebook uh, continues to have uh, ethical challenges. Uh, they have antitrust challenges, uh, and we're going to see whether a name change portends a change in culture, Jay. So, Jay, I ask you to do a legal analysis. So tell us about when does a potential fine become a threat? This comes to us from Keith Paul Bishop in the California Corporate and Securities Law Blog. As the trial of the constitutionality of SB 826, which is California's female director quota law continues, the question on the plaintiff's standing remains in contention. As Keith reported in June of last year, Judge Maureen Duffy Lewis previously overruled the Secretary of State's demurrer, finding that the plaintiffs had adequately pled taxpayer standing under Section 526A of the Code of Civil Procedure. Now, the plaintiffs must do more than plead standing. They must also prove that they have standing. Both the plaintiffs and the Secretary of State agree in their pre-trial briefs that to establish taxpayer standing, the plaintiffs must show, among other things, a threatened or actual illegal expenditure by the state. 
The Secretary of State argues that the plaintiffs cannot make the showing because expenditures to date have been, quote, limited to monitoring, reporting, and information sharing, all of which are legal, close quote. Section 301.3 imposes a fine of $100,000 for the first violation and 300000 for subsequent violations. The statute further empowers the Secretary of State to impose fines. The Secretary of State characterizes these as, quote, potential fines, unquote. But what is a threat but a suggestion that something usually bad might occur? Further, it's not the monitoring of compliance a step towards, or is not the monitoring of compliance a step towards potential enforcement. When the legislature mandates conduct, prescribes fines, and empowers the state official to impose these fines, it strains credulity to characterize those actions as anything but a threat. So, Tom, that's the end of our top 10 stories. Let's take a look at the podcasts and events that we had this week. Well, Jay, I thought it would be appropriate for you to tell us about the uh, excellent series, Not Your Father's Monitors, which was sponsored by AMI, which posted this week. So you want to run through that for us? Love to. So uh, as we've spoken about in a couple stories earlier today, the recent announcement by Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco has refocused the DOJ's use of monitors, and this caused um, a lot of excitement and consternation in the past. Uh, To analyze this, my affiliated monitors colleagues uh, participated in a five-part podcast called Not Your Father's Monitor. In episode one, Bethany Hengsbach considered the change in monitorships from the white-collar enforcement and defense bar perspective. In episode two, Mikhail Reader Gordon looked at global aspects of the new DOJ monitors focus. In episode three, Christina Ravello discusses how E&C assessments help drive more compliant companies. On Thursday, Jesse Kaplan took a look at his views on the intersection of the twin topics of antitrust and healthcare. And in episode five, which drops today, uh, founder and president of uh, Affiliated Monitors, Vin Siani and Tom get together. They take a look at where monitorships have been and where they're going in 2022 and beyond. So it's a great, uh, it's a great series. We will link to it in the show notes, and you can find it uh, chiefly on the Compliance Podcast Network. Tom, what's happening with uh, Greg Greenberg in his favorite country of Argentina? So uh, we had dropped Jeff, uh, excuse me, uh, Jay, our final episode of Effing Argentina, uh, and this one I really, uh, uh, Greg and I really wrapped up this series. We talked about. Uh, what led him to write it, kind of the experience of writing it during the pandemic, how catharsis, cathartic it was for him, how really all of these stories are just about his experiences uh, living in the big city of uh, New York City and the exasperations and frustrations he's dealt with uh, over the years. A couple of key themes uh, came out. Number one, I know you will appreciate this one, that uh, moms and wives are the backbones of families and uh, how much we boys depend on uh, both of our mothers and our wives as uh, we move through our lives. We talked about our favorite stories. Um, My favorite character was an appropriately Officer Krupke from West Side Story, who hopefully we will see shortly when we get to go back to the movies to see the Spielberg version. 
But my favorite story was uh, effing Argentina itself, uh, the story Greg wrote about what happens when Argentina asks for another $500 million uh, just because. So it was a lot of fun. Greg uh, talked about the experience of writing it and how all of those stories had he'd intersected with them at one point or another. Uh, really a lot of fun. Jay, uh, we started a new series of the, on the Compliance Life this month as Tuesday was December 7th. Uh, so it's the first Tuesday of the month. And this month I have my first tr- director of trade compliance, not uh, chief compliance officer. I thought it would be fun to, to maybe explore the world of uh, trade directors. So I have Matt Silverman, trade director of IAVA, and uh, he starts his journey, uh, talks about his academic background. It took him a little while to get into trade compliance, so we go over that. Uh, also, we have a new addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, uh, Karen Woody. Uh, from Everything Compliance, an occasional pinch hitter on This Week in FCPA, has started her own podcast, Once Upon a Trading Law, The History of Insider Trading. What makes this podcast so unique, Jay, is Karen actually interviews her students from an insider trading class. So Karen's the host, but she's interviewing students. So it makes for a really fascinating study. And Jay, if I could, I'd like to tell you about an upcoming event I'm participating in Next Wednesday, uh, an ECI webinar, uh, myself, Mike Volkoff, Kerry Penman, Pat Harned, Dr. Pat Harned, and Skip Lowney uh, are going to talk about the intersection of compliance and ethics and compliance programs based upon a survey that NAVEX commissioned that ECI do. So it's going to be a fascinating exploration. We have some had some great pep talk or prep talks, so uh, I'm looking forward to that. So a, any final it, words? I, I was going to say it's a true murderer's row of E and C intelligentsia and paparazzi there. So uh, make sure you uh, sign up. There is a registration link. There and is. Tom Fox is the voice of compliance. He can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I'm Jay Rosen, as always, Mr. Monitor. And you can reach me at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. So Tom and I would like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA for the week ending December 10th, 2021, the Happy Holidays edition. We're happy you spent some time with us either this weekend or during the week. And we look forward to getting together again with you next week when we'll take a look at this week in FCPA. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you'll check out the latest edition of the Compliance Podcast Network, Hidden Traffic, a podcast hosted by Gwen Hassan, where Gwen looks at the international scourge of human trafficking, and more importantly, the response a corporation and compliance professional can make to help fight this scourge. Once again, Hidden Traffic, hosted by Gwen Hassan on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hope you'll join Jay and I again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.